Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to step back from the China-Africa story and the way that we look at it in a very kind of narrow sense. Uh, my background in Chinese affairs, your obviously your background in African affairs. And most people who look at this story either come from an African point of view or a China point of view. And today what we'd like to do is put the China-Africa story into a global context. Yes, we want to we want to cast a wider net and to and and look at how the China-Africa relationship is different and similar to lots of other relationships um, on the planet and what its its global impact is. So to help us do that, we are thrilled to have on the show uh, Jonathan Paris, who is a London-based international comparative political analyst uh, with an absolutely fascinating background. And I should say, Kobus, that Jonathan kind of got in touch with us, and this is what I love about what we do, just by reaching out and emailing. And then we started to have these emails that were back and forth that were long and, and detailed and very, very interesting. And so we said, ah, we need to take this from email and bring it to the show. Uh, before I introduce you, Jonathan, let me just kind of tell people a little bit more about your background. A former senior associate member of St. Anthony's College at Oxford. He's been a lecturer at Yale University in the Department of Political Science. He is currently a member of the advisory board of the Global Diplomatic Forum in London, an associate fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization at King's College in London, a senior advisor at the Chertoff Group in Washington, D.C., and he's also a member of Chatham House in London and the Council on Foreign Relations in the United States. You are extremely well qualified, Jonathan, to comment on these issues today. Oh, thank you. But I, I, I'm not a China expert and I'm not an Africa expert. And that's exactly why we're actually thrilled to have you on the program today, because you can take this relationship and put it into a broader context. And one of the reasons why I'm so happy to have you join us is that you've been actually doing a multi-year research project on the Chinese in Africa. Uh, this has taken you to travel in Johannesburg and in Ethiopia and also to China to study the issue. And you came to this story uh, again, without the background in China or Africa. And so it really is interesting from your background in Southeast Asia and the Middle East and the Gulf in the United States and now Europe uh, to look at the, this important geopolitical relationship. So I think the best way for us to start our discussion today is kind of maybe give us an overview of this research project that you've been working on, and then we can kind of dive into some of the specifics. Sure. Uh, just really quickly, because you don't want to hear about a boring paper. But um, one of the uh, uh, first things that one notices today in taking up China and Africa is how things are changing so quickly. Uh, China itself is changing, and that impacts the way it approaches Africa. So the first chapter is, hey, what's going on in China? They, they don't have so much labor anymore. Their wages are going up. They need to offshore manufacturing, and they're doing it right now. They're moving their manufacturing abroad. Uh, and so the question is, does Africa have a role? Because on the other side, Africa has a very robust demographic uh, birth rate. A lot of young people will be entering the uh, labor market for the next 20 years or more. And where are these new jobs going to come from? So that's chapter one. Chapter two is about China's security footprint in, in, in Africa and also more generally abroad. You know, the, the, the one belt, one road. Uh, particularly the Djibouti base that, that everybody's talking about, including on this show. And then chapter three is about prospects for competition. Is China the only player in Africa? Of course not. 
Uh, finally, I, I have a chapter four called, Is the Sino-African Honeymoon Over? And there I talk again, as in chapter one, how is China adapting to, to new conditions, to new challenges in Africa? And that's about it. So let's, you know, you, you mentioned the issue of, of Chinese jobs going to Africa. Um, we recently interviewed Helen Hai, who started this massive shoe factory in, in China. Uh, sorry, in, in Ethiopia, like Chinese shoe factory in Ethiopia. Um, and she was extremely bullish about East Africa. And the, she was saying that she, thousands of, Af- of Chinese jobs are going to go to East Africa. And, you know, she's, she's excited about how there's going to be Chinese factories popping up all over Africa. Did you, do you share her, her enthusiasm? I, I do in a way, Kovas. Um, I, I did hear the show with Helen. And I went to see her. Um, uh, actually, I tried to see her in Beijing, but the traffic was so bad that I missed my appointment with her. She had to leave just as I was pulling into the Intercontinental. But I did see her in London two weeks ago, and I think uh, she is as impressive in person as she is on your podcast. I think she, is, she sees something that nobody else saw, which is that a place like Ethiopia, close to 100 million people at a very low level of development, could become a hub of manufacturing for Asian uh, light, you know, light industry, like the shoe factory. And, and, and it does appear to be working. I went to see Bololemi, the first of these industrial parks. I went to see her new uh, company's place, H and, uh, H&M, what's it? H&M Garments. And, you know, you see them putting the uniforms together with an Ethiopian air for, uh, workforce and shipping them off in boxes to the United States under the, the AGOA Act, you know, the Duty Free Act. So they, they have all the pieces together from sourcing from the, the cheap labor to uh, finding a, a, an outlet for their products, which is namely the United States and Europe. Now, Ethiopia is not Africa. I mean, it's a part of Africa, obviously, but it's not Africa. And I'm, I stand here as kind of a skeptic in all of this to, to the Helen High kind of party line where she says, you know, of the 85 million jobs in, the menu, in China's manufacturing that will be shed, you know, a lot of those are up for grab for Africa to take. You know, I'm sitting here in Vietnam where I see firsthand a lot of those manufacturing jobs coming directly. Uh, Nike has moved most of its manufacturing down here. Adidas is down here. Furniture companies are down here. Uh, And a lot of that has left China here because there is solid infrastructure. There is a cultural similarity in many ways. Uh, There is a legal system that they can work with. Uh, It's an experienced manufacturing and exporter. And all of that in Africa is still relatively new. Uh, You don't have reliable power systems. There's not suppliers that are there. So aside from Ethiopia and maybe Rwanda, uh, most of Africa does not seem prepared to to kind of build a manufacturing center. What has your research found in that? Well, first of all, I often say the same thing. Ethiopia is not Africa. But what, what do you mean by that? Well, it's not necessarily representative of the continent as a whole. It's, uh, it's the exception that proves the rule. It is part is it, of Africa, but it's not necessarily representative of what's going on in Nigeria or what's happening in, in other parts of, say, you know, the Central African Republic, or we can look in the Congo, or we can look in any number of countries. And, and what, what's happening, whereas the government in Ethiopia is very, very focused on building an export sector. And governments yeah. in other parts of the continent are not as focused. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I would say this, that, uh, that w- w- because I asked Helen the same question, 
um, Rwanda and, and, and Ethiopia are not typical of Africa. But she is trying to do the same thing in, I believe, four West African countries, Senegal, uh, Cote d'Ivoire. She mentioned Nigeria. She also mentioned Djibouti. Well, that, that's not so, so different from Ethiopia. And one other, oh, and Ghana. So if, if her project takes off in any of those four or so West African countries, I would say her case is much stronger. But right now, it's very much a wait and see. Well, I guess the issue is, is whether there is something culturally, you know, fundamental about something, some kind of essential specific culture in, in East Africa that would help them develop this, which West Africa doesn't have, or whether it's simply a model, a development model that can be replicated in other areas. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 Kenya should be also a place where they would be doing it. She didn't mention Kenya. Uh, that's an East African country, but it's a completely uh, it's it's a very different uh, political system than Ethiopia. Uh, so I wonder whether you guys think Ethiopia uh, that Nairobi could be a, a base for manufacturing and is. Well, I have I have seen Chinese government spokespeople in the past saying that Kenya is a very easy place to do business, and they've kind of praised the the kind of business friendliness of the Kenyan government. So you know, I'm not sure how much that's worth, but it has been said. Yeah, I suspect yeah. South Africa will continue to be the main hub of Chinese manufacturing in Africa, in part because there's a legacy that's there, there's supplier networks that's there, there's an infrastructure legal system that's there. So when we look at the vast majority of, of heavy industry and even light industry investment in manufacturing, is based on what I can see. Uh, it's still happening in South Africa disproportionately. Um, so, and in North Africa. a lot. A and lot, in North Africa, uh, in North that's Africa. right. We just saw, for example, no. just this week in Morocco, a Chinese auto investment, uh, in part because Morocco has a cluster of auto manufacturing uh, companies that are there. Renault right. is there, Peugeot is there. And so those, okay. those, those clusters in some ways make sense where the Chinese would kind of pitch onto that. Okay. But going to a new kind of virgin territory for manufacturing seems very difficult. Well, let me just well, get long-term trend. I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm up in, a, in, a, in, a, in an F-16 looking at the world from very high up and speeding through it. But you've got to admit that both South Africa and North Africa have relatively modern or lower birth rates than, than the equatorial African countries we're talking about. And so if you look at all that surplus labor that's going to be available in West, East, and Central Africa that will not be available in Morocco, Algeria, and South Africa, you have to wonder, well, maybe there is a comparative advantage of locating a manufacturing uh, facility in one of these countries that has all this available labor. It's a win-win to me. I it mean, is, they, but that, that in yeah. many ways is an older way of thinking of manufacturing. Labor as a component of the process is becoming less and less important, even in the low-end, uh, low-skilled, soft technology uh, you know, like, like shoe manufacturing and textile manufacturing, even those are starting to automate more. And so we're going to see in the next five to ten years uh, labor being less important as a, as a kind of a deciding factor. I would argue that legal systems, supplier networks, and power supplies will be far more important than the cost of labor in many countries for doing manufacturing, simply because we're moving towards automation. Yeah, yeah. No doubt about it, the power issue is important, and that's where Ethiopia has done much better than a lot of other African countries. 
uh, and governance. I think you meant the legal system you're talking about. Governance. governance. That's exactly it. Let's move on to your second chapter, which is security. And this is a particularly interesting one, in part because of your background uh, in the Middle East, in the Persian Gulf, and in the world that we live in today, where the Chinese now are being brought in more and more into these conflicts in, in the Middle East and with global terrorism than they ever thought they would be. You know, China has sat for a long time kind of as an observer to the terrorism issue, but no longer. Uh, just in fact, earlier this month, there was an attack on a German train where a teenager who, uh, I don't remember exactly how many people he killed, but he did single out uh, tourists from Hong Kong. I don't think he killed anybody. No, oh, that's right. But he attacked, uh, including tourists from Hong Kong. Yeah. And uh, three Chinese UN peacekeeping soldiers in 2016 have been killed in Mali and South Sudan. And please don't forget that a Chinese national was also killed by ISIS, beheaded on camera, as, as so many others have as well. So China now very much is an active player. And in part, Jonathan, China, and a lot of people forget about this, is a focus of ISIS because of the political tension that happens in China's western province of Xinjiang, where the Chinese have come down with a very, very heavy hand on the Muslim populations that are there. Um, there's been a long, simmering, brewing, festering insurgency that's been there. There's even been a, uh, a, a radicalization and an independence movement put on by Muslim radicals that are there. So this is a very sensitive issue, and I'm probably not even using the most politically correct language to describe it, but it just kind of shows that China in Africa, in North Africa, in the Middle East, and the Persian Gulf, those are converging in a security context. Kind of give us your take on that. Well, it's a whole big topic that you mentioned about five things, but let me hit you with a few ideas. One is China has seen Chinese being singled out in Pakistan. Uh, for several years, at least eight years. Um, you remember the mosque takeover by a very radical group where they singled out, I believe it was Chinese uh, prostitutes who, who were uh, particularly uh, uh, singled out. But anyway, so they know that their, their people can be targeted in places like Pakistan. Uh, but for the, it hasn't been that often that you see um, terrorists going after Chinese on purpose. I don't think the 17-year-old on the German train was seeking uh, these Hong Kong tourists. Uh, however, um, my friends in China tell me that the Moroccan security people have told them they are starting to hear uh, chatter in the AQIM group and other groups, uh, terrorist groups. Let me, just, North- uh, let me just stop. AQIM is Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, just for those who may not be familiar with the acronym. On oh, the Maghreb, I'm sorry, Al Qaeda in the Maghreb. They're starting to uh, uh, attack Chinese because they're Chinese, not because they happen to be foreigners. And I think that fits in with the the, the mega trend, which is China is Chinese in Africa are becoming wealthier, and therefore uh, the idea of, of of attacking somebody who's who who is wealthy, but also I think ideologically China because of the Uyghur problem you mentioned in Xinjiang. Uh, is is going to be easily uh, hooked in with all of those Sunni who say they're against us, those Sunni radicals like Daesh, ISIS, who say China, Russia, United States, all against us, so all of their people are fair game. Recently, when the Chinese peacekeepers were killed um, in South Sudan, there was a, a real uproar 
on the internet in China. And we've seen in the past that the Chinese government can be quite is quite responsive actually to to uh, political chatter on you know on the Chinese internet. Um, so I was wondering, do you foresee the Chinese government being pushed into more international interventions by nationalist voices domestically? Well, you know, when, when I was in China a few weeks ago, the big story was that uh, it was a domestic kind of a what Eric will understand what I mean when I say a Rodney King case. Somebody uh, who was picked up by the police. He happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he ends up uh, dying the next morning. And the police said he uh, I think they said he had a heart attack. But in fact, uh, eight million social media messages later, uh, there has been a re- investigation of the police, and they have now come out and said that he, he it wasn't a heart attack that he suffocated from vomit that he was clearly beaten so um, so what is that about? That says that social media and public opinion can change the way uh, the Chinese police are used to, to handling these affairs, the way the government is used to handling these affairs now, if you apply it internationally, I think the South China seas. Uh, tension recently was an example of people being a little bit worried about public opinion because, as you know, in China there's no uh, there's no compromise here. They, they see this situation in South China Sea as black and white. Eric knows that better mm-hmm. than anybody in Vietnam. But the it, surprisingly, it's been very restrained. There have been no big demonstrations at embassies. There was some small designated Kentucky Fried Chicken. Uh, franchise that was designated as the place that angry Chinese could go to to protest. But basically, uh, the government still controls public opinion. The question is, going forward, as more and more Chinese are, are killed abroad, will the public opinion be so readily manipulated by the government? Can it be turned on and turned off by the government as it is now? Well, it looks like there is a lot of pressure on the Xi Jinping administration to respond to kind of terrorism incidents involving Chinese overseas and the killing of Chinese troops overseas. Also, don't forget that in 2015, China implemented a new terrorism, an anti-terrorism law that does allow for Chinese military action or police action overseas. And this is what's so interesting because this comes into the non-interference doctrine of China's long held this idea that it will not interfere in the internal affairs of another country. So what happens if in northern Cameroon or in northern uh, Nigeria, Boko Haram kidnaps again, because last year Boko Haram kidnapped a group of Chinese nationals, will Chinese special forces be deployed to, to intervene? And will that be considered a contravention of the non-interference doctrine? So we're coming into this whole new set of thinking about Chinese interference and intervention abroad in the name of security. And in so many ways, Jonathan, the United States has kind of set the paradigm because the United States has set the standard, um, has never really been concerned with other countries' sovereignty when it feels that it has a national security interest that it must pursue, either in drone attacks or in kind of intervening with special forces. So I think in some ways the, the Chinese may be taking a play out of the American kind of foreign policy playbook in terms of how to kind of intervene on behalf of its nationals or its financial I a, interests. I have a separate kind of angle on this, which is um, how far do you go if you're China's government in, in who you protect? Do you protect 
your Chinese workers who are working for a state-owned enterprise, or even private companies, but clearly, you know, a contract worker sent over there to do a job for a Chinese company? Or do you protect anybody who is Han, Chinese? That is, any ethnic Chinese, whether he's a, uh, he or she is a storekeeper in, a, in rural Mozambique, uh, or, or whether they come from Hong Kong, uh, we talked about that earlier. So how far do you go? Now, clearly, the Chinese government, no matter how rapidly expanding their military is, is not equipped no. to protect every ethnic Chinese abroad, just like Putin is not able to protect every ethnic Russian abroad. So clearly, there has to be some standard. Uh, I don't know, what do, you, what do you and Kobus think? Where should be the, the line drawn as to the, the umbrella of protection abroad uh, if, you, if, you're, if you're hurt or killed? The issue is not not only that they, they that they're not equipped to protect these people; they're not even equipped to know where they are. They've yeah. one of the biggest problems is just keeping track of where different Chinese nationals are in Africa, because frequently these these Chinese nationals are in Africa, among other reasons, to get a little bit of breathing space, and so that they tend to purposefully not you know, report themselves to the embassy. So frequently the embassies find it very difficult to track where Chinese nationals are, especially because they also, the shopkeepers particularly, tend to move to very rural areas in order to to open new markets and to avoid competition with other Chinese shopkeepers. So it, it becomes a particularly difficult problem for the Chinese government because of the migration patterns of, of Chinese migrants to Africa. That's a great point, Kobus. And I'll, I'll add to that to say that I think that the threshold is on the scale uh, of of the evacuation that's required. So Libya, for example, Yemen, uh, here in Vietnam, there's been an evacuation of Chinese nationals So in recent years. So I think in some ways, uh, if the number is large enough, then the Chinese can mobilize resources to, to do evacuations. And incidentally, they're getting much better. This is what a lot of the Chinese security analysts will tell us that they actually have now systems in place and experience that they can draw on to be effective in doing large-scale evacuations, 10,000, 15,000 people, as was the case in Libya. In fact, if you recall, during the Libya crisis several years ago, they did a more effective job than even the United States did. While we were fumbling around trying to get our resources in line, the Chinese had already evacuated tens of thousands of their nationals. So it was an interesting kind of you know, first step that they took out there. Yeah, Eric, yeah, somebody in, in Shanghai told me a joke that maybe China should charge American or duo nationals in Yemen a ticket to get on their ship to leave Yemen during the crisis uh, <laughs> a year ago. Yeah, but, but, yeah this, is, this is interesting because this, this is how, how better, I think, to understand uh, the uh, Djibouti uh, base, whether we call it a military base or an access base, a logistics base. Having that base makes it far easier for China to... to get those evacuees out, whether they be in Juba or in, uh, you know, you, you name your country, um, having a base would make that easier. Also, having combat trained peacekeeping operators working within the UN in Juba in Mali uh, is another way of having, you know, soldiers close by to rescue ethnic Chinese. So, yeah. I see security footprint. But I'll, I'll just kind of – sorry to interrupt you there. One, one point that I would make is that I don't think the Chinese will, will send out a special forces team to help a shopkeeper uh, somewhere, anywhere. Um, but if a Chinese diplomat is kidnapped, if a Chinese celebrity is kidnapped uh, or a wealthy Chinese 
then I could see the day uh, either in the Gulf, in the Middle East, in North Africa, where a special operations forces could be deployed to, to intervene. Um, in fact, I, I, I think that day is coming, and it will be an interesting paradigm shift when that day comes because that will mark in many ways uh, a real contravention of the non-interference doctrine uh, because yeah. China is intervening in, in another country's internal affairs without the sovereign approval of that country necessarily. And it will be a very, very important turning point. And I think in some ways, you know, Kobus, this comes at the same time as Japan is changing its constitution to give it more military flexibility. And I see in some ways these two dancing side by side as they're trying to push for more military latitude. Yeah, I, I, yes. I would say- in in the case of Japan, I think it's also part of part of the issue. Then becomes that it's a kind of a moving of the U.S. out of that out of that ex- uh, that exchange. You know, um, where in the past Japan was so dependent on U.S. security support. Um, now that they're normalizing or changing their their constitution, and it's much easier for them to intervene in different areas, they then take on a lot of that of of that responsibility as. As a major world power, and don't. Um, and, and that will you know kind of, gonna, it's going to be very interesting to see the, the first time that, that that power is really actually wielded. And don't forget that Japan also has a base in Djibouti. Uh, we only have a few minutes left, uh, Jonathan. So I want to make sure I get to the end of your research project. Is the honeymoon over? Uh, you know, there's been a decidedly negative turn that's happened in China-Africa relations over the past, I'd say, six months, six to nine months. Public opinion in Africa has shifted dramatically. Uh, negative towards the Chinese, in part because Cobus will mention year in and year out that you know the Chinese spend all of their time focusing on their relationship with elites and governments and do very, very poorly in mass communication and mass public diplomacy. And on the street level, a lot of people are growing tired of the Chinese. They're growing tired of the killing of wildlife, of the corruption, of the shoddy products, of so many different aspects of the China-Africa relationship. And I guess it really does raise the question, do you think that the honeymoon may in fact be over and that we're going into a new, more bumpier phase of Sino-African relations? I'm a little bit less uh, less pessim- pessimistic. I think that China has shown it, 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 its culture has always been this way, in my opinion, that it can adapt. It can be pragmatic. It will try to learn the lessons that you mentioned, all these ugly incidents. It will try to do better. But let's face it, uh, if, if you don't have that Chinese financing coming in to build those roads and power plants, where is it going to come from? Who is going to fill the gap? The United States? Uh, Brazil, uh, you know, Europe, uh, South Korea, I don't see, uh, Japan, I mean, I don't see any competitor stepping up to the plate. So I still think there is a win-win there. It's just, it's going to be a different kind of relationship, a different kind of, of marriage. The honeymoon is definitely over. I think there's also going to be have to be some kind of reckoning on in Africa itself about identity and race. Not to sound like a complete academic. Um, for example, like my, I'm, I'm teaching a class at the moment about about nation and identity in South Africa, um, and I ask I ask my students um, who. 
who South Africans are. And one of my students said that, you know, kind of they find it very problematic that certain people are claiming political influence, even though they're not really South African. And I asked her, like, who she's talking about, and she said the Chinese. Um, and I pointed out to her that, look, there's research that points out that the, that the Chinese have been in South Africa since the 17th century, which means they predate both the Indian and the anglo people of British extraction, kind of big big immigration influxes into South Africa. And those two groups are seen as South African. They're just South Africans. Um, but yet the Chinese are still separate, um, even though they've been here longer. So, you know, kind of that that is going to be key to, like, whether Chinese can be counted as African and whether whether the identity of being African can be expanded to include that. And that becomes a very interesting point, Jonathan, in part because we're looking at a population now of between one and two million Chinese migrants in Africa who, for the most part, will never go home. They're they're now a permanent demographic part of of Africa's ethnic and racial makeup now. So I'm curious what you're – how you think that will change uh, the continent. I think if if I can just tie all the four themes that we've talked about this this morning, uh, I would say that it's really important for those Chinese migrants – to leave their, their little comfort zones and, and really get to know their neighbors. It's, it's on a local level, I think integration is important. It's been shown all over the world that when you start to intermarry, uh, that changes things uh, uh, on the racial issue that Cobus brings up. But it's just going to be a very tough, uh, tough road because, hey, look, look at how the Africans are treated in, in Beijing and, and Shanghai. I saw with I saw the, the, the kind of racism in, uh, in my, you know, in person there. So there has to be changes uh, in the Chinese way of looking at Africans, but also there has to be uh, an appreciation in Africa of, of just what China does bring to the table and what, what would happen if China started uh, to be a little less forthcoming with the kinds of projects that, that Africans have come to depend on over these last 10 years, I think would be a, a serious problem for China, for African economies. Jonathan Paris is a London-based international comparative political analyst who's doing a multi-year and finishing up a multi-year research project on the Chinese in Africa. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us and really the best of luck with the end of your research project. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Kobus and I will be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, then you should definitely head over to the China Africa Project's website at www.chinaafricaproject.com. Sign up for a weekly email newsletter full of the week's top China Africa headlines and context. And for up-to-the-minute developments, come to facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where stories are updated every four hours. The China Africa Project sends a big thanks to publishing partners at the Huffington Post, the Asia Society's China File website, Pulse Ghana, Pulse Nigeria, and Yes Africa.